Good morning. You're probably wondering why I look the way I do. Well, I look the way I do because my father loves me. He loves me. And he loves me so much that when I come to church on a Sunday, he often wrecks me somehow. And he takes me to places where I want to go, but I don't. Or places that I don't want to go to, but I do really. And so what I didn't have was a pair of ski goggles, so I have sunglasses. And I don't have whatever it is that they have when they are on the slopes doing this, so I've got these walking sticks. But basically, what my father wants me to do is he wants me to ski. He wants me to go off-piste. He wants me to go places where I wouldn't normally want to go. And I've spoken to Joe, I think, before and talked about whitewater rafting. I would love to go whitewater rafting, but no doubt while I'm at the edge of the, the, I don't know, it's not a cliff, but ready to go, my teeth would be gritted. I would desperately want to go, but there would be that bit of me that's like, oh my gosh, I can't do it, I can't do it. And that's kind of how I feel this morning. Lord, I can't do it, I want to do it, I can't, but I can't do it. I can do it if I trust him. I can, but I'm not sure that I'm quite there. But I like prophetic symbolism, so I'm here because I'm saying, God, I want to go with you. I want to go with you to the place where you want me to go. And I feel that he's also saying to us that as Malcolm and I are leading this church, there are places that we can't lead you, we can't take you if we don't go there ourselves. So this is my prophetic symbolism to say, I want to go. I want to go. I want to surrender to you, Lord, as completely as you need me to do that. And whether that is completely today or not, we will find out. But that is why I'm dressed like this. And I'm reminded of a pastor that I used to have. And he used to come to church at times dressed in odd ways. And you would be wondering what on earth is going on. And I particularly remember he came in once with a a rucksack on his back and he just walked around the whole time with this rucksack on his back. But he was making a point and when he preached his message, off came the rucksack with all the baggage that was in it. So hopefully and prayerfully you will remember this image of me looking and feeling like a fool for Christ, but that's what he's asking me to be. He's asking me to lead the way. He's asking me to go. And I'm saying, Lord, as much as I can, I want to. As much as I can, I will. And that is my prayer in Jesus' name. So I have been... um, Hard at work, probably harder than I needed to be, but hopefully we have a good message for you. Malcolm has prayed for me, and I pray that I will speak those words that the Lord wants me to speak. As he said, we're focusing on relationships, and he's, he's, he's told me about when I stand here with my papers and do certain things, but hey, I'm a fool for Christ, and I'm happy to be there. But as I say, we're talking about relationships. Praise the Lord. So when I was in my 20s and 30s, I lived on my own. I had a flat. And in my kitchen on the windowsill, I had a little ornament. And it was an ornament of a um, a little toad on a leaf. And there was a signpost behind this little toad. And I thought it was quite cute, so I bought it. But on that sign, it said... You've got to kiss an awful lot of toads before you meet the handsome prince. And I thought, well, actually, as I said, I bought it because I thought, well, I identify with that. That was certainly true in my life because there had been a lot of toads 
a lot of relationships that weren't quite, weren't really. But I thought, yeah, there's no prince yet. He hasn't appeared yet. There have been lots of promises, but nothing tangible. So I bought this. I identified with it because I felt it was a truth in my life at that time. And maybe you can identify with that too. Maybe you can identify with that from your past. Maybe you can identify with that in your presence, that you feel it's kind of true that there are all these toads out there, there's all these promises, but actually there's nothing tangible coming through. Well, prayerfully, if you don't know it already, hopefully by the time that we get to the end of this message that you will know something more about the truth of what God actually wants to say to you, the truth of the plan that God has for you, and you'll be able to differentiate between the lies that are going on, the truth and the lies. And I pray that you will know the goodness that God has got in store for you. As Malcolm has said, the series that we are in at the moment is Love is the Key. And last week was the first message, and he spoke, as he said, on God is Love. And you do need to listen to the message because he's expounded on quite a few things about this love that God has for us. Um, Essentially, God is the source of love. His love is very different to the world's kind of love. And his love is based on choice. It's based on a decision of the will. It's not airy-fairy. It's not fluffy. It's not candy floss. It is firm. It is sure. But there are more messages in the series, and they will be running throughout the month of February and March. Every week, there is another message. Praise God, as you said, and I've said, today's it's relationships. And at the start of National Love Week, and as he's mentioned, Malcolm's mentioned, this year, there is a leap year. Um, Yeah, there is a leap year. Um, So we're focusing today on couples. We're bringing it down. Valentine's is on Wednesday, so the relationships that I'm focusing on are the couple's relationships. I have thought about it. I'm not entirely sure that it will be the title or the subtitle to the message, but I think it would be Journey to the Altar. And so I'm going to be looking at marriage, and I'm going to be looking at the courtship process. I would say that it is a PG-rated message, so I can't see any children, but if they haven't left yet, they might want to. I would say, am I qualified to preach this message? I have no clue. I've said before that God has had me here talking about gardening, which I don't do. He's had me talking about parts of the body and biology was something that I failed. And here I am now going to talk about marriage and the courtship process. But these are things of which I am experienced to a greater or lesser degree. I would say I used to hate it as a singleton when married people stood and told me what I should be doing or that it's all going to be all right and marriage is going to come to pass. I used to hate it. It would be kind of like, well, of course, it's easy for you to say. It's easy for you to say, well, here I am now being one of those married people about to tell some single people what perhaps they ought to be doing or whatever. But please know that I was single in my life story. I have been single for far more years than I have actually been married. So I, and I don't forget those days. I really don't. I had a lot of time to think about things, a lot of time to cry before the Lord. But he would speak to me. He would speak to me and he would always remind me that he loved me. And he was the only one who died for me. So while I was shedding my tears, while I was like, Lord, 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 I'm I'm on the shelf. I've been left. I've been left. Nobody loves me. Nobody wants me. They're giving me all of this sweet talk, all of this love talk. God reminded me, but I'm the one who died for you. So that would kind of bring the tears up fairly short. It would stop. But I also have to say that there is lots that can be said about this subject. And while I am off peace with the Lord, there are many things I may not say. There are many things I could have said. There are many things I should have said. But I'm going with what I believe the Lord is telling me to say and asking me to share in this moment. Please do come and talk to me afterwards if you wish to.
But in terms of relationships, in a very general and broad sense, and looking using a basic dictionary definition, relationships are all about the way that, we, that two or more people are connected. And in terms of connected, the way that these things are brought together, these things are joined together, or these things are attached or united. And that might be by blood in your family, you might be connected by blood, it might be by contract, you may be um, in a partnership, you may be employed, you have an employment contract, it might be another kind of legal relationship in the sense of marriage or adoption, or it might just be a friendship that we have. You've got hobbies in common, something in common, and you're friends with so-and-so. But you know, God is very interested in the relationships that we have. I would call him the creator of relationships. I would call him the designer of relationships. But then I think to myself, well, he is the great I am. So as the great I am, he just existed. He was just there. So therefore, does that mean that he created the relationship? Or was the relationship just a dynamic of the Trinity that just was? Whatever the answer to that question, and you might want to ponder that one. Talk to me later. Um, he's very interested in relationships. The Trinity is a relationship. There's a dynamic which Jesus speaks of. But God is very interested. And indeed, he um, is connected to every person on this earth because he created every one of us. And as we've talked about before, he redeemed every one of us by the blood of his son. Some people may have acknowledged that, some people may not. But God is still very interested in each and every one of us and what we're doing. He's upset and saddened by the fact that many don't acknowledge him. He's upset and saddened that many people don't know him. Many people don't do the things that he wants them to do. That saddens him. So he's still very interested in the relationships. And obviously everyone across the world is involved in a relationship. From the point of conception, we are in the womb. We are connected to our mothers. So whether that ends up being a good or a bad relationship, we all have a relationship and we're born into relationships. But it's people across the world, whether we are saved or unsaved, um, people of all ages, races, colors, creeds, cultures, everybody has a relationship. We all know something about the dynamic of a relationship. But there is another person or entity that's involved in relationships, and that entity is the devil or Satan. He hates relationships. If relationships are something that God loves, therefore the devil hates them. And his job, according to his MO, is to kill, to steal, and to destroy. So he wants to do everything he can to stop relationships happening in the first place or putting a wedge in, causing something to go wrong so that people can be unhappy and relationships can be broken. So he is in them as well. If he can mess them up, well, yes, he will. But as the creator, I'm going to say, he's the creator and designer of relationships. Our God knows all about them. And he has given us a manual. He's given us the Bible that tells us all about what we need to do to make them work and also what we need to do if they go wrong. He's given us an instruction manual. He knows all about them. But interestingly, as I'm saying, you know, Relationship isn't a word that you will find in the Bible, certainly not according to Strong's Concordance. As I've said, it is, it is um, an intrinsic thing that happens, but God is very interested in them and he protects them. And to clarify, I suppose we have the Ten Commandments as part of the instructions that he's given us. He's given us the Ten Commandments, and commonly it's said that the first four relate to the way that we are concerned with the way that we relate to him, our relationship with him, and the other six are um, in relation to the way that we connect and relate to the p other people, to one another. 
Jesus himself says in the New Testament when he's speaking to the Pharisees that there are two great commandments. The greatest is the one that says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. And in Deuteronomy 6 more, it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. Whichever one you opt for, put them both together. We are to love the Lord with all of our being. We are to relate to him with all of our being, everything we have. And he says the second greatest commandment is this, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In Leviticus it says, you shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. He is very concerned with relationships. When we focus on the couple's relationships, again, a dictionary, basic dictionary definition will say that it's about two people or things of the same sort that are considered together. It will also say that there are t- it's about a relationship, a couple's relationship is about two people who are married or in a romantic or in a sexual relationship. And it also says that a couple could be an indefinite number. Now, I'm sure most of us would think that a couple is two, but apparently it could mean an indefinite number. There's a verb also that speaks of coupling, and that means to connect or to combine. It may mean to have sexual intercourse. Other associated words are to hitch, to link, to invite, or to yoke. And for me, I think this is where the unraveling begins, because the dictionary definition begins to present a way that is not God's way. And as I've said, God's way is very, of his way of love, and generally his ways are very different to the ways of the world. And we see in society a widening gap as the laws are being changed, as culture is demanding that I can do what I want, when I want, how I want, and with whom I want. Liberation rules. But God's way to clarify versus the definitions that I've just given you is where it speaks of two people. For God, it is definitely only two people. And it's also those two people are also a male and a female. It is not an anything goes. And where it speaks of two people who are married or in a romantic relationship or in a sexual relationship, to clarify with God, a sexual relationship is in the context of the marriage relationship. So it's not an either or, it is an altogether. I think, well, I was going to say, and I am going to say, that even in a romantic relationship, I think, for me, that also is in the context of a committed relationship. And before anybody shoots me, please do wait till I get to the end of the message. Again, as I say, you can speak to me later. But again, to clarify, in terms of sexual immorality, the sexual relationship is one that is in a marriage relationship. The Bible is very clear. We're told in Ephesians 5 that we're not even supposed to mention it, don't even talk about sexual immorality. In 1 Corinthians, it talks about fleeing sexual immorality because the body is a temple. We are holy unto the Lord. And in Hebrews 13, 4, he speaks, he gives some um, concluding, the writer of Hebrews gives some concluding moral directions, and it says, the marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. The Bible is very clear. Where it speaks of being honorable, marriage is honorable. It is to be esteemed as something that is worthy, as something that is precious, as something that is of a great price, and something that is especially dear. And when it talks about the marriage bed being undefiled, it is to be kept undishonored. It is not meant to be dirty. It is meant to be kept clean and pure. It is something that is holy, and it is not meant to be treated with disrespect. 
God will judge fornicators and adulterers. So we know that is not something that he wants for us. So the couple's relationship also, as I'm saying, is a special relationship. It's a special relationship that is very personal, and it is a very intimate relationship. It's the only relationship for which you need a license. Yes, if you are adopted, you will have um, a, go through a legal process, but otherwise you don't need a license to be in any other kind of social relationship. We're born into family. It's a relationship of a lifetime commitment. We exchange vows when we get married, and it's something that is done publicly. And many of you in here, I'm sure, are married, so you know this. But it's something that is done publicly so that everybody knows, so that there can be no confusion that maybe they're not married over there and maybe this one is free or not free. It's clear that, this, that these two people have made vows together, and it is a lifetime commitment. It's the only relationship that you have where there is such a physical connection, where there is such personal intimacy. Other relationships aren't like that. This is what makes the, the marriage relationship, the couple's relationship, so, so special and different. Yes, you have a mother and child, but I, I think that's still very different to the sexual relationship, the physical connection that a man and a woman make together. The couple's relationship, the marriage relationship, is, what, is an institution that God has designed and it's an, an institution that he's designed that affords um, protections and security for both people. Marriage, the marriage relationship is, a, is an analogy that God uses when he talks about the relationship that he has with the children of Israel, that he has with his people, and even that he has with us. It's a relationship that is to be kept pure and to be kept holy. And when I say with us, we have the passage in Ephesians 5, which is 22 to 33, and it's spoken of as a mystery. And I am going to read it because I think it is pertinent. So 22 to 33, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the saviour of the body. Therefore, just as, Christ is sub just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So there is um, instruction, if you like, direction on how the marriage relationship is to work, on what husbands are supposed to be doing, loving their wives as Christ loved the church. It's sacrificial. It's a love that hurts. Malcolm spoke last week about the fact that God is love, and he explained lots about what that agape love looks like. It gives. It hurts. It costs. 
It endures. It is gentle. It is kind. It is nurturing. I also find it quite interesting that the women are not called to love their husbands. They're called to respect them. And it's very easy as women to speak to our husbands, to speak to our, yeah, not our men, but our husbands. And to say things that are not kind, things that are not helpful, things that don't build them up, things that don't edify them. Because we're perhaps pointing out that thing that they just keep on doing wrong. And that thing that they just won't change and they just won't get right. It's very easy to tear them down and to make them feel small and bad and rubbish and ineffective. And we need to remember that we are called to admire our husbands. We are called to big them up. We are called to say nice things. We can tear them down just like that because we know all about them. We know all about them and we know where it hurts. We know exactly what to say to cause a problem, to just get that point across. We know what to say, but we're not called to do that. We're called to love them by respecting them and speaking kindly to them. But going back to, well, focusing still on that relationship, the marriage relationship is also the forum in which procreation takes place. God said, be fruitful and multiply. But yes, there is the joining, the joining, as it says, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It is a journey of oneness. God says, Jesus said, In Matthew 19, what God has joined together, let not man separate. It is a lifetime commitment. It is something that's not to be entered into lightly. It is not for a moment. It is till death do us part. But we have the grace of God. But in all of this, it is because the couple's relationship is so important, so special, so significant, that the journey to the altar is also significant and special too. It matters It matters. If you want to have a successful marriage, if you want to have one that endures, you need to make sure that you make the right choices as you make your way to the altar. And for this, I want to look at the passage. For some, I'm going back to Eden. But this is about life in God's garden, and this is from Genesis 2. I wasn't intending to go back to Eden, but I got led there. So I'm going to go through this. Line by line. In fact, I'm going to start at verse 8, which isn't on the slides, but it says, as an introduction, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then we go to verse 15, which says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. So what we have here is we have that God has prepared a place. He's prepared a space for Adam to be in. And he takes the man, Adam, and he puts him in the garden and he gives him a job and he gives him a responsibility. He's told to tend and keep the garden. Verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. And 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So God now gives him, having given him a space and a place and a job and a responsibility, he now gives him some instruction. He says you can do all this. You can eat of all of this. But this one thing of this tree you mustn't eat. So what he allows him to do is far much more than what he doesn't permit him to do. He asks him not to. 
He has a vast array to choose from and just one thing to not do. He's given him a place and a space, a job and a responsibility, plus some instruction. And verse 18, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. We're not told of a conversation that took place. We're not told of Adam yearning and saying, Lord, I'm on my own. He might have been, but we're not told about that. It is God who says it is not good that man should be alone. God identifies the need. He sees him. He identifies the need. And he also says, I will make him a helper comparable to him. So God also identifies the solution. He knows exactly what he needs. And I think it's interesting that he says this because God created everything. God knows everything. He knows everything. He's all-powerful. He's everywhere at the same time. But yet, okay, I'll make him a, hel- I'll make him a helper because I hadn't thought about that before. I think he had. He must have. But Adam is silent. He says nothing. Verse 19. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So I think to myself, God has said, okay, I'm going to make him a helper. I've seen that man is alone. It's not good that he's alone. Everything else that God made was good. But this was not good. And he's going to make him a helper. So I think, well, what he's going to do now is he's going to make him a helper. But no, he doesn't. What he does is he makes every beast of the field and every bird of the air. Now, I know things with God are fairly swift. Perhaps a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. But he's seen Adam's need. He's identified the solution. And he's now going to do this. I'll leave that one there. Um, Whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. Verse 20, so Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. So all these animals have paraded past Adam. How many animals is that? The ark was fairly large. I think it was the size of one and a half football pitches or something like that, some four stories high. We know the earth is filled with loads of animals and loads of birds. We've got the encyclopedias. We've got the books. How long did this take? Well, Adam is waiting. But over here, God is making all these animals, and he's passing them by him. But what, he's, what I believe he's doing is he's allowing and enabling Adam to exercise his authority because he has said that they are to have dominion. So whilst Eve is not even on the program, Adam is exercising his authority. He's got his space, he's got his place, he's got his job, he's got his responsibility, he's got his instruction. He can do all this, but not this. But now he's going to name all the animals. And we know that whoever rules gets, is, gets to name things. If we're taken into captivity, people often change the name. It happened in slavery. Names are changed. Um, we know that if, uh, for example, Esther was taken and her name was changed. Well, her name was changed from Hadassah to Esther. We know that Daniel's name was changed. His friends' names were changed. When people go into captivity, the ruler takes authority. And he says, well, I'm going to call you this. So Adam now gets to exercise some of that authority. He gets to exercise headship and leadership. This is what it looks like. This is what it feels like. But Eve is nowhere to be seen. She is not yet created. It's no surprise to me that there was no helper found for Adam and no helper comparable to him. It's no surprise, I feel. God knew. Verse 21, so after all that's happened, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. So now God has caused Adam to be unconscious. He is totally out of it. 
Well, he's now going to perform the first surgery. He's now going to take the rib, which he does. Adam has got nothing to do with it. We're not told of a conversation where Adam has said, well, what I'd actually like her to look like is this. In fact, I know it's a she that I need. And what I know, I want her to be like this. She needs to, she needs to look like this, act like this, talk like this. There is no tel- there's no telling in scripture of that conversation that took place. On the matter, Adam is silent. God puts him to sleep, a deep sleep. He is out of it. God takes the rib, he closes up the side. And then, verse 22, the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. So God has created woman. He's created a she. He has formed and fashioned her perfectly. She is perfect mentally, spiritual, emotionally, physically. She is what God has created because he knows our needs before we ask him. He knows exactly what Adam is going to like and what Adam needs. And the fact that she is a rib, she is taken from the side. She is not taken from the head. She is not taken from the foot, but she is taken from the side. She is comparable to him in every way. He brought her to the man. So we have the first wedding. He's taken her down the aisle and he's brought her to man. Adam was unconscious. Pregnant pause. He was unconscious. Adam said, verse 23, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam is like, yay, yay. Here she is. He is delighted. He is not thinking, that wasn't quite it. I was expecting something different. I wanted something different. This is like, at last, he has been waiting. He has had a longing. He has had a yearning inside of him. But at last, yay, this is now bone of my bone. She's like me. He identifies with her. He's delighted with her. She shall be called woman. Again, he names her. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. At last. So more of his headship is happening. And I believe that the word for helper is actually strength. So this isn't about women feeling that they are less than. They are perfectly formed. God created Eve for a purpose. We've had this before. He created her to be a helper. He created her to be comparable to Adam. Adam was given the place and the space, the job and the responsibility. God said, you need someone to help you do this. And so he created Eve to do exactly that. Whatever the world might want to say is not what God says. Verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's the first place we see the word wife. They shall be joined to his wife. He leaves and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. So the journey to oneness begins here. The journey into oneness And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. So they have this intimacy, they have this perfect relationship. They're not ashamed, they are innocent, it is pure, it is clean, it is free, it is delightful. They are able to enjoy each other. Praise the Lord. Intimacy. God sorted it. So we see in marriage, we see as that marriage takes place, that it is a friendship that is more than It is a relationship that is more than friendship. The goal, as I've said, is oneness. It is a gift that's been instituted by God. And there are three aspects to this. The man we see, he leaves his parents. He leaves and cleaves. I've spoken about the public act. The man and woman are joined together. They take personal responsibility for each other's welfare. They are faithful to one another. It's an exclusive relationship between the two. 
and the two become one flesh, intimacy and commitment. And in terms of that oneness, you know, Jesus speaks of the relationship that he has with the Father. I think it's John 17, verses 20 and 21. He speaks of, he says, he's praying, and he says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, the intrinsic relationship, as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Woman is taken out of man. And man and woman have this relationship, this interconnected physical relationship. Woman is born, man and woman are born from woman. It's all very interesting, the dynamic of that. But God has this relationship and he wants man to experience the same, the journey into oneness. We are created for a purpose. The marriage relationship is for a purpose and it has a goal. Altogether what we've seen is that God identified the need. He also identified and provided the solution, and he brought them together. He put it into effect. It was all about God. Adam was unconscious. Eve wasn't there until the moment she was needed. None of them, neither of them, had anything to do with the process, with that courtship process. They had nothing to do with it. God directed the whole thing. He initiated it, and he brought them together. There was no romancing, There was no romancing until they met, until they were married. God brought them together and he went into her and they they were joined together and became one flesh. They effectively submitted to God's process, though they didn't, well, he he put him to sleep, but they were effectively submitted to God's process. But they were delighted, as I said. They were naked and unashamed. Until the moment that they were married, the only relationship they were enjoying was the relationship that they had with the father. It was just Adam and his father, and it was just Eve with her father until she took her, until he took her to meet Adam. Praise the Lord. So while you're waiting for any singletons, while you are waiting, it's an opportunity to use the time that you have as preparation. And that's one thing that I can certainly say. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians 7 which talks about the principles of marriage. And it talks about the fact, there's a section, I think, on the unmarried and widows, where the unmarried gets to spend all their time and focus on the things of God, whereas the married ones are suddenly become concerned about their husbands and they get involved with all these cares of the world and trying to make things right for him. And I do remember the very sweet times that I used to have with the Lord. When you are single, you can do what you want, when you want, how you want, and so on and so forth. But when you become married, there's a lot more compromise. There's a lot more, well, actually, I'd like to do this now. Well, really? Okay, then. You know, there's a lot more compromise that one needs to do. So this is the time, while you are single, while you have that time to prepare yourself for marriage to prepare yourself in the relationships that you have, to prepare yourself in the not doing the things that you want to, preferring the other as we are called to do as Christians. All Christians are called to prefer one another. We are called to love one another. This is the time to prepare. Now, there are some similar um, examples in Scripture that we can use or that I can use. Um, I think the relationship between Isaac and Rebekah It's a story where Abraham, the father, sends the servant out to go and bring back a wife from his family. So he doesn't want a wife from the Canaanites. He doesn't want a wife from the world. He wants a wife from his family where they were. But the servant is sent out. So Isaac stays home. We're not told that Isaac is aware of what his father is doing. His father is making preparations for him. Isaac may have known, but we're not told this. Rebecca is with her family. 
She has no clue. She's just getting on with the ordinary. She's getting on with her business. She's getting on with carrying and fetching the water and doing whatever it is she's got to do at home. And it's only when the servant pitches up and he prays, Abraham said, the angel will go, God's angel will go before you. The angel of the Lord will go before you and he'll make it fine. So Abraham believed God. The servant prays and he says, the scripture says something like, before he finished praying, there was the woman. He was saying, like, if this happens, then I'll know it's the one. Give me good success. And before he finished speaking, there comes the woman. And she does exactly what he was asking as a sign to, to, to know that this was the one. She does exactly that. She's willing to serve. She gave him water, but she also watered his camels. She was willing to serve. She was open to him, to being helpful, to being a good woman. She was open. But she's also given opportunity. So the, the, the servant identifies her that this is the one because God, the sign has been, been given. And he's like, okay. They go to her house. There's a conversation between her parent, her father and her brother, and they say, yeah, it's fine for her to go, but they still ask her, are you willing to go? She says, well, okay, then yes, I'll go. She hasn't met him. There's no photograph. She knows nothing but what the servant may have said. Yes, he's got all these things, but this isn't romancing. This is the servant. Where is, where is Isaac? He's way back there. There is no romancing here. So again, neither Rebecca nor Isaac have anything to do with this process, with this courtship process. But she goes. She makes a decision of choice. She says, yes, I will go. And she goes. And as, she is, as they're getting near, Isaac looks up and sees he's meditating, hopefully on the Lord. But he's meditating. He sees this woman and he's thinking, okay. She also sees this man. And when she asks the servant, who is it? She dismounts. She then covers herself with a veil. They are brought together. And she goes into his tent, they become one flesh. They have no involvement in the process. This is what I'm saying. She agrees to the marriage. She makes a decision of the will. I will do this. I will go. I will go. They get married. I think I do want to say something about the yoking. Because, you know, um, when Abraham is saying, I don't want you to take a wife from among the, the daughters of the Canaanites. I want you to take a wife from over here. We as Christians need to be mindful that we are not unequally yoked. And it's very easy to meet someone and who is not a Christian, um, but you desperately like them because they look right and they sound right. And who knows, they might even feel right. I don't know. It's very easy to justify and think, well, actually, I'll just do this because they're not saved and God needs them saved and he can use me. God doesn't need to use you in that way to save somebody. He doesn't. We need to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. We have nothing in common with them, and this is not God's best. And what the devil often will do, he will bring that one that seems just like, kind of like, okay, there's just this one thing that's not okay. And if, if, they, were, if they were a Christian, it would all be fine. But that's the one thing that's not fine. And that often comes along just at the time you're about to meet the one, because it's the deception that comes. There's a, there's a, was it, um, a lie with a little bit of truth in it. Um, and so you're thinking it's all right, but it's not all right. God is saying, do not be unequally yoked. You have nothing in common with them. They don't treat you the same way. They won't treat you the same way. I have experienced this. I have. But I don't think I need to go there now. God is good and God is gracious. It is easy to justify, but don't be justifying it. If God said don't do it, don't do it. 
Another example we have is that of Boaz and Ruth. Boaz was a woman who had a good reputation. She's a woman who was a widow, a young widow, a fairly young widow. Her husband died, her father-in-law died, her brother-in-law died, and she's now at a crossroads thinking, what am I going to do? But she decides to stick with her her mother-in-law, Naomi, and they go back to Bethlehem after all these deaths. The other daughter-in-law goes her way, but um, Ruth says, I'm going to stick with you. So she's committed and she's loyal, and she goes with Naomi back to Bethlehem possibly where they should never have left, but she did, they go. Ruth is a Moabite also, and the Moabites were not supposed to be part of the Israelites. They were not supposed to be able to come into uh, God's family because of stuff, historic stuff that had gone on. But she sticks with her mother-in-law. She works hard. She serves. She goes gleaning, and she just happens along to Boaz's field. I say, and I'm sure many do, that the Holy Spirit has led her exactly to where she needs to go but she just happens to be by his field. He is a gentleman. He is a man of good reputation. He is a man of, yes, of wealth, but within society, he is a good man. And he looks after her. He says, look, glean here. And he gets them to to leave more things, more food for her to glean, more more wheat, more, more barley for her to gather. He tells the men not to trouble her. He tells her where to get water. He looks after her. But she submits herself also to her mother-in-law, who then says, well, actually, he's a relative of ours. So note that he's a relative. He's of the people of God. Um, She also tells her to go back and see him. In fact, to go back and eventually to lay by his feet and so on and so forth, which is a symbol. He understood what it meant. Generally, generally one wouldn't know. I didn't know. But if you were to lay by the feet, it was an indication that this this could become a marriage. But he does the right thing. There was a... um, a relative who is closer, and so he gives the relative the opportunity to marry her, to redeem her. The relative says, no, I don't want to do that. So Boaz does it. Boaz is an older man, but he takes care of this woman. They come together. They become husband and wife, and um, she then becomes the grandmother or, of David, the line of, that leads to, the, to Christ. So she's given a prominent position within the genealogy of Christ, but she, didn't, she wasn't doing anything in terms of trying to find a husband. Her mother-in-law told her what to do, but she was just working. She was just being loyal. She was just doing the things that she needed to do, getting on with the everyday, getting on with ordinary. Boaz was doing what he did, and finally God brought them together. They weren't seeking each other. There is the example of Esther. There is an example, a modern-day example of Derek Prince. He has a book called God is a Matchmaker. He had two marriages. After his first, he, had, he was married, his wife died, he was married again. But in each case, he testifies to the fact that God brought them together. I stand here as one who can testify that God brought me to my husband. I lived in London. I was done with men, seriously done. There was a list, a long history of men, as I say, relationships, lots of sweet talk, lots of promises, but no fruit, no prince. I was like, God, okay, I'm done. I'm going to Norfolk. I'm going to study. I'm going to get a a degree, and I'm going to, I'd like to get a first. But that's my focus. I want nothing to do with men, nothing. I came to Norfolk, was getting on with my studies. Thought I was doing all right. Um, But I found a church. I found a church. I started going there, went to a prayer meeting, and thought, oh, that very morning I had looked at something, 
And that, at the, the prayer meeting, this man was expounding on that very thing I'd looked at. And it was like, oh. And I had been taught as a good girl to encourage the speaker. So I went up to the man and I said, oh, hi. I said, I did that this, this morning. And that's really interesting, isn't it? And I said, oh, what's your name? And he said, my name's Malcolm. And I said, oh, that's my surname. But that was all that was. That was something like the February. That was all that was. And I don't think we spoke again for another four months, five months, whatever it was, however many months it takes you to get to July, when there was a meeting. And um, the church said, like, somebody said, are you going to this meeting? I thought, no, I can't do that. I'm tired. Because I was at the end of my first year of study. I'd been trying to move properties and all sorts of things, baggage from London, baggage from Norfolk, everywhere. It was like, I just can't do this, God. And I saw this video. I was, I was done. I watched this video from my old church. And at the middle of the video somewhere, I was asleep on the sofa, as I often do when I'm watching the TV. I suddenly sat upright. And it was like, who needs to see this? And it was like, Malcolm needs to see this. And I thought, well, I'm not, I said, well, I said, I'm not, I don't know him. I'm not going to speak to him. So it ain't going to happen. And I went back to sleep. I went to church the next day. And I thought, well, if he comes near me, I'll talk to him. But otherwise, I'm not saying nothing. So he didn't come anywhere near me. I didn't say anything. I went to work the next day, but somehow I found myself at the meeting. I sat on my chair with my friends, and he sat wherever he was. I didn't pay any attention to him. But in the course of the meeting, he said something. He mm, put his hand up on the chair. And the meeting was a surprise to me because um, this church was lovely. The people were really lovely. But then at this meeting, the people were really angry. The people were upset. And I was like, I don't get it. What, what's been going on? So I don't know. They obviously kept stuff very well hidden. Um, but people were upset, so this man puts his hand up. And this man says, well, you know, as a police officer, when there's an accident, it's a bit of a mess. There's debris everywhere. But you basically have to get on with it. You don't have time to think, well, I, want to, I don't want to do this or I don't want to do that. You just have to get stuck in and get on with it. And so on the meeting went, and the meeting ended. And I thought, well, I'll just turn and talk to my friend Mary, who Mary just then stood up and walked off that way. And I thought, okay. And I'm looking around, it's like, well, okay, God, I know what you want me to do now back to my skiing. Um, so I went down and I spoke to him. I said, oh, you know, so how are you doing? In the, context of the converse, in the context of the meeting, it was like, so how are you doing? Well, this man had his Bible and he got up off the chair and he was zipping up his Bible and he just started talking about his mother and his brother, and, or not his brother, his sister and this and that and life and, and whatever. And I stood looking at him thinking, what on earth is this? Because it was all sorts of stuff that you just don't share with somebody that you don't know. But, so he, but that's what he did. And I looked at him and he looked at me and somebody else came along and they stood there, the three of us. It was like a Tom and Jerry freeze frame show. You know, it's just like a still. Eventually the person walked away and I said to him, well, I think we need to have a conversation about God. And I could be here for a long time, so I won't go there. But I testify that but that was the July and then in the December we were married. There wasn't a lot of time for courtship. There wasn't a lot of time for stuff in between. And in fact, most of the time, most of the time, he was never the man I was going to marry. Because in my back pocket, so to speak, I had a photo, a mental image of what my husband looked like. He did not look like him. So it was never him. While I was obedient to do what God said, I was obedient to say what God said. I showed him various books, writings, whatever it was. I did all of that. He was never the man, so there was never any danger. There was no trouble. I wasn't interested in the relationship. He even told me one time who he was going to marry. Or not, not who. He told me that he knew who he was going to marry. And I was like, well, why are you telling me? Because I really don't care. I really don't want to know. But anyway, as I said, the rest is history. By the end of the year, we were married. Which wasn't something I would have thought was going to happen because I'm now in the second... I've just started my second year of my degree... 
and I'm now getting married. And trying to do both of those things at the same time is not something I would recommend, but if God says, obviously, you must do. So to conclude, to draw some conclusions from what I've said, and perhaps some final thoughts... In terms of what, as a singleton, what you need to be doing or not not needing to be doing is you do not need to dress to impress anybody but yourself and the Lord. He is the only one looking. And if your Mr. Right that God has got for you is is the Mr. Right that he should be, he won't be looking at you anyway. He may not even be in the same space as you, but he won't be interested. He won't notice what you're wearing because he's not like that. You don't have to, the world says if you've got it, flaunt it, let it all hang out. That's not what we need to do. God knows where to find you when he needs you. God, when God went looking for David to anoint him king, David was out in the field. Was it seven brothers passed before Samuel? And Samuel's like, well, it's not one of these. David is out with the sheep. God knew where David was. God went and found him because when it's your appointment, then he'll know where to find you. You don't need to attract any attention. You don't need any flies. You don't need that. God's process is not a do-it-yourself process. It's not a DIY process. Our Father loves us. He loves us and he knows what we need. He knows what we need and he will help us if we allow him. If we let go, if we get out of the way, if we surrender to the process, surrender to him and say, Lord, over to you. I trust you. I've surrendered my life to you anyway. So if you want me to be married, I will be married. And actually, if you don't want me to be married, I might need to bemoan that one. But hey, I surrender to you. I surrender to whatever it is you have or want for me. God's God's process is not a hit and miss process. It's like when you're at the fun fair trying to shoot that thing and you just keep missing. You know, which duck can you hit? What do I need to do to get that one? That's not God's way. God knows exactly who he has fashioned you for and he knows exactly who he has got fashioned for you. He knows your needs. Every Adam is different. I think also that in terms of submitting to God's process... And allowing the journey to the altar to be the one that he chooses for you, it doesn't necessarily mean that your journey to oneness is going to be smooth. Because we are living in a fallen world. We are living in a fallen world. And our our husband, the person that he has got for us, or the person that he's fashioned for us, we are a work in progress. We are a work in progress. The only perfect person who ever lived was Jesus So we still have baggage, we still have stuff to get over, we still have stuff to resolve. And that's why it's important for us to to read our Bibles and to live what he says, to refer to the manual on how to restore relationships when things go wrong. But we do need also to keep our marriage relationship alive. We do need to romance one another, and this is Love Week, so I would encourage husbands and wives to do some romancing. Keep love alive. Don't let the busyness of life get too much in there that you don't have time for one another. Our God plays a key and strategic role in the journey to the altar. He plays a key and strategic role in the process. So as a singleton, what we need to do, what we, what you need to do is to let go, let God, wait and see what he will do. And then you too will be able to testify and say, look, what God has done. Amen.